Hi, welcome to this week's edition of Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and this week, our very special guest is none other than Josh Pike. Josh has had a hiatus of five years from making solo records, but he's back with a fantastic new album called Rome. And you might have already heard a couple of the singles like I Don't Know, Doubting Thomas, or Home, but I guarantee you, this is a record you want to hear in its entirety. Josh was at home in his studio at Tim Shed, and uh, yeah, he took the time out to talk about everything from recording, writing songs, how he writes songs, going overseas to mix the record. We spoke about his other life as well as a creative person, everything from kids' books, and also his charitable work with the JP Partnership and the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Now, this um, podcast was almost derailed before it started by Josh's cat, who was kind of living the life of a wild animal, and uh, Josh can fill you in on that story. Here he is, Josh Pike. You've had a bit of a drama this morning. Yeah, I was up a ladder when I got the text that uh, you guys were hanging on the line. My, my cat, Charlie, got a bird. The bird, I was told, he got out of a possum house that is up in a tree, which I didn't know was occupied by anything. So I went up to see if it had left a, a, a nest of baby birds in there or something, and I put my phone in there to get a, a photo, and it was the bloody possum. There's a, a possum up there as well. So, yeah, it's good to know, but also... Bad for the uh, native wildlife that my cat, despite his multiple bells, is still, uh, you know, attacking animals. So I guess it really was a life and death situation that, uh, yeah. It was, yeah. And now, but- now the, uh, the bird is in my laundry uh, trying to recover and hopefully it'll be able to, you know, get out there and fly again. Let's hope so. But it, it's, it's uh, the, the, the sort of uh, subtext of your album, Nothing Lasts Forever. <laughs> Yes. Um, Rome, all roads, all roads lead to Rome, as you said. Um, wh- where did this sort of philosophy come from? What made you kind of uh, strike that chord to want to make that part of your record? Well, it's, I mean, when I'm writing songs, it's always very much after the fact that I realise there's themes going on in there. So, you know, I'd rec- I recorded and demoed the album over about 18 months or even longer, really, because I've... I've in a, you know, I have my own studio here where I'm chatting to you from um, and I'd come down and record these songs and, and at the end of it I realised that there were these themes and you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in my life in the last sort of five years that I choose not to talk about but how those dramas kind of manifested themselves um, were uh, into you know, basically you know, pretty severe anxiety issues and panic attacks that started probably about three years ago um, and it took a while to get a handle on those, but part of the process of getting a handle on those was the idea that, you know, all of these things, you can't escape them, you know, particularly with anxiety. Anybody with, with those sorts of issues will tell you the more you try and run away from it, the more it just keeps coming back to you. The more you kind of try and suppress it or push it down, the more it just keeps coming back to you. So it was very much a process of... of accepting that that these you can't escape yourself and that these things at some point you're going to have to look them in the eye and face them and like I said it wasn't a conscious thing but I, I realized that you know at the end of having sort of 15 songs written those themes were just part of it and obviously writing songs is just the way that I kind of process things that are happening in my life and that that was why. So when you talk about anxiety uh, did you come up with uh, long-term solutions to that or tricks to help you get through it? It's a long process. It's an ongoing process. I mean, in the end, it got so bad that I, you know, I, I went on medication and and still am. And you know, I 
I've done lots of mindfulness and meditation. Exercise is a big thing that helps a lot. Um, but you know, it's a, it's just a, it's a pain in the ass. It's just a, the sort of thing that just can come out of nowhere and you, you're feeling good about everything. And then the next thing you just, you know, <laughs> in a world of panic. So yeah, it's, it's an ongoing thing, but it's, it's, um, it was definitely sort of, uh, exacerbated by the touring lifestyle. Um, you know, lack of sleep is a huge thing, too much booze, that kind of stuff. So it's the highs and lows of touring, you know, the adrenaline and then the, mm-hmm. the, the dopamine rush of, of playing shows and then the, the come down afterwards. All those things contribute to, to being a bit fragile or raw, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. It's not, not a, by no means is it solved, but it's, a, it's something that I feel I have a different perspective on now. Are you able to meditate or is that something where you've got your, your brain is too active to do that? I, I find it very difficult, but I definitely try. I got pretty good at it, I reckon, for a little while and I sort of backed off it a bit. Um, but yeah, I had that. There was an app on my phone which was highly recommended to me by a bunch of people called Headspace, um, which is guided meditation, which I, I, would, I would recommend to anybody. But it's, yeah, it's, um, it's something that I sort of, I still do in terms of the breathing. The breathing yeah. is a big thing. Um, but yeah, like I say, it's 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 a it's an ongoing process. It probably always will be. It's interesting with the Headspace app. That guy's voice is so soothing. I just start falling asleep within five minutes. Yeah, which definitely. I guess is probably a good outcome anyway, right? It's not a bad outcome. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, insomnia is something I've always struggled with as well. So I found I, I definitely found it helped with that idea. My sort of my thing was you know just waking up three in the morning in the midst of a panic attack um, and just having thoughts spiralling out of control. Um, and I feel like that's one of the biggest things that I've, I feel like I do have a bit of a handle on now. So you've developed a method of dialing those thoughts back to a more rational place to help you get through the night? Yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a funny thing. Like I, I always used, you know, without the actual panic element of it, I always used those times previously to to think of creative ideas and to think of how I wanted to kind of manifest my life and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so that type sort of rabbit hole thinking was kind of useful to a degree for a while, but it, it gets to a point where if you're having negative thoughts and you're approaching those negative thoughts with the same sort of follow it down the rabbit hole mentality, it's not, it's not helpful. So I, now my sort of strategy is I let myself have five or 10 minutes of, of creative rabbit hole thinking, you know, where I'm thinking of, cool ideas or thinking of how projects might go and then I basically tell my brain to shut up like literally I tell myself to shut up and I just try and, and I just practice breathing and until I go to sleep and you always do go to sleep it's just you, you almost have to bore yourself <laughs> bore yourself into going to sleep it's funny a, a guy once said to me that you have to if you don't fall asleep say in 30 minutes you have to get up and grout the tiles in your bathroom <laughs> and he said everybody falls to sleep rather than doing that <laughs> I've heard you quote um, the great philosopher Popeye before, I am what oh, yes. I am. That's something you kind of wear as a bit of a badge, that idea? I mean, I literally wear it as a badge. I have the, the Popeye tattoo on my arm, the anchor. It was always a, 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 I just was drawn to that character when I was a little kid. Um, and then, you know, when I sort of started reading about Eastern philosophy and stuff as an adult, you know, it's a very Taoist kind of mentality. You know, I am what I am and that's all I am. And and I, I really do live by it. You know, there's lots of times when I feel, as we all do, feel inadequate or feel like I'm not doing my best work or I'm failing at something or at times, you know, when I feel like I'm really nailing something and, 
you know, it sort of keeps the ego in check one way or another to just look at yourself and say, you know, you are what you are. That's, that's, there's nothing more to it, you know. Um, and I was in Amsterdam a couple of years ago and, and was walking past a big, just round the corner, came across a huge um, sculpted Popeye statue for some reason. I don't know if there's a connection with Amsterdam and Popeye, but maybe there is. But anyway, I took a photo of it and then when I, this was on tour and when I got to Paris on that tour, I went to a tattoo parlor and, and got the um, got the tattoo of the, the anchor. And yeah, it's I, I do sort of live by it. That's fantastic. You, you've adopted a bit of a Buddhistic way of thinking in recent years, or has this been something you've had since childhood? I mean, I'm, I'm a, an atheist, um, and, but, you know, I, I don't know if I'd consider myself a spiritual person, but I'd, I'd believe in, um, you know, having sort of moral or ethical standards. And, <clears throat> you know, my wife's family is, is Buddhist. They're Vietnamese and... And I guess I've been influenced by them over the last 16 years. Um, but also years and years ago, I was on tour and it was, it was it would have been 2007, Memories and Dust had come out. I was going great, it had just gone gold. I was mm. playing around the country to sold out tours, but I just didn't feel happy. And uh, Stab from the band Blue Juice, who were kicking around at the same time, um, we were having a chat. We were in, we were in Brisbane on tour together. Or we, we happened to be in Brisbane. We met up for breakfast and he was like, I'm going to give you this book. It's called The Art of Happiness. It's by it's Conversations with the Dalai Lama with a, um, uh, an American psychiatrist. And, and I was like, oh, come on, man. I'm not into this kind of stuff. And he was like, just, I'm going to, I'm going to post it to you. And I was like, really? Anyway, so a couple of weeks later, I got, a, got the book in the mail and mm-hmm. Stav had sent it to me. And, and I read it and it did, you know, there was definitely some Buddhist uh, principles and, and, premises of the way to, to, to handle things like, you know, stress and uh, anxiety and, and I guess the shifting of your perspective was the big thing. So, you know, you know whose standards am I a success by? You know, it, it's little things like that. Shifting your perspective is, is a huge thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's, a, it's, it's probably the thing that I feel most aligned with in, in terms of those spiritual elements to life but at the end of the day I'm, I'm more a student of, of creativity and how creativity manifests itself in positive ways in people's lives well I, I guess that brings us to the tower of josh pike with uh, this new record <laughs> so it's it's fascinating record i've really enjoyed listening to i was lucky oh, enough you. to get an early uh copy and I, I sort of made some notes on a few tracks when it kicks off with old time's sake i love that kind of john barry-esque introduction you've put on there it's very, oh, the, very cinematic. Yeah. So that sound is um, an auto harp that I that I. So I was mucking around with plugging an auto harp into an amp with um, a bunch of pedals on it, like a pog and delays and stuff like that. And I got this really great sound. And it just started out as an instrumental kind of mucking around thing, chord progression. Um, and, and then I sort of had gibberish, uh, you know, vocal line for ages. And then I came back to it a, a few months later and added an acoustic guitar track, and it just kind of gelled everything together. And I was like, "Oh, this is actually a this is actually a song." Mm. Uh, and from there, it took shape. Yeah. You, you mentioned the gibberish vocal line. I once read somewhere that you're a fan of Jeff Tweedy, and he'd said he often just does gibberish when he's trying to bash out chords, and then deciphers the gibberish to make lyrics. Is that something you followed? Yeah. So I, I don't always do it. Like I, I prefer it if you know I prefer having lyrics that come to me consciously, but I've used it many. I mean, there's songs like "Momentary Glow" from the last record, and 
uh, there's a bunch of songs that um, you know started as gibberish so on voice memos or I'd demo a whole song I'd have a structure and a, and a chord progression and even production ideas which I'd demo but then I'd I'd sing in gibberish and do harmonies in gibberish and, and then put like delay and a fair bit of reverb on it and mix it low in the mix and then kind of listen to it on headphones if I'm riding my bike or on planes or whatever and then yeah you decipher stuff and you just get this weird stuff out of there and it sort of sends you on a trajectory that you might not have otherwise gone on. Yeah, I once heard that sometimes when uh, Bert Backrack and Hal David wrote that Bert would just make a noise, but that noise would then become a sound or a word that Hal David could then link onto mm. and write those amazing lyrics for him. Yeah. Uh, you, it's, you a good, are... it's a good tip, I've got to say. Like, I, I would encourage people to try it if they're stuck. The, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to, you know, hear yourself singing gibberish, which is kind of funny anyway. <laughs> I know people hate having their lyrics read back to them, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read you. <laughs> but I think this is my favourite line on the record. Because life is not a circle, nor a line that carves a trail through time. It's nothing, we are nothing, and yet still we carry on. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, it sounds very nihilistic, but it's not meant to be. It was sort of inspired by, you know, the Elon Musk idea that, well, it's not his idea, but that he sort of popularised recently that we're all potentially living in a simulation and I was listening to a podcast with with that on it and it just it kind of sent me into a bit of a tailspin for a week philosophizing over that and thinking about that and um and at the end of the day I realized well I don't I mean at the end like what are you going to do I'm not I'm not (laughs) you know I'm not nihilistic to the point of you know giving up or becoming completely you know absorbed in uh, you know, self-annihilation or, or drugs and alcohol and whatever else. But I do feel like, you know, if if there's no, uh, you know, in the absence of believing in God, which I don't, um, what is meaning? And, and really, I don't necessarily think there is meaning. I just think that, you know, life is to be lived and loved through. That's basically it. And the things that give me comfort and that I find meaning in personally is, creativity, love, and um, nature, basically. Like, you know, love meaning family, love meaning, you know, relationships, the, the love of, a, you know, a parent to a child or the love of a partner. Um, nature, just getting out in nature and you realise that nature is going to go on regardless of who's existing on the earth is always a humbling and kind of awesome experience. And, and creativity just has so many forms of positivity, like it can be food, it can be art, it can be culture, it can be TV shows that you like or podcasts or comic books. But those things are the things that I find, you know, meaning and inspiration in. Well, all those things are dotted through the album, aren't they? All those themes you touch on. I, I heard you were once doing something like kindy drop-off or school drop-off and somebody said to you, you're not just a songwriter, you're a creative person. And that was quite liberating for you, I understand. Yeah, so that was I was uh, I was in the playground picking up my oldest son. This is probably probably seven years ago. He turns ten next week, um, and I was in the in the playground and and I was chatting to this woman, Justine Flynn, who's a really successful TV producer and, and writer, and she did that um, uh, the latest a uh, Netflix series, um, and she, I mean she's just done so many so much stuff. She's written books. She directed the Justine Clark show that I was a part of as well. Um, and she knew of my work, and and I said I want to do what you do, Justine. You know, like you do t- TV shows. You, you you she does like creative consulting as well. I was like I want to do all these things. You have so many big ideas, 
And she was like, you can do all those things. You need to stop thinking of yourself just as a musician and think of yourself as a creative. And it was, it was that kind of reframing of my process and my um, abilities that, you know, I almost felt like I'd been given permission to think of myself outside of being a, a musician. And, to, you know, to a degree, that's a problem with Australian culture, I think. Like, we, we're pretty quick to keep people in a box and, and sort of not let people... Um, speak too highly or confidently of themselves where you go to America and the way people talk about themselves is, I mean, I find it uncomfortable, but it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's so ingrained in their culture. It's like, yes, I'm a musician and author and da 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 and podcast host. And, you know, and maybe you scratch beneath the surface and these people are dabbling in all those things, but it's not their job, but they still identify themselves as these things. And, you know, within reason, I think that's really good because it, it does, give yourself permission to you know as soon as you think of yourself in a certain way you you engage in that more fully you know you don't engage in it in a self-conscious way you engage in it in a very conscious way so for me that was the thing I suddenly engaged started engaging in these other forms of creativity in a very conscious way like trying to write kids books and doing music for for film and tv and stuff like that that, that thing you mentioned about, uh, you know, Australians being a bit self-conscious in terms of mentioning what they do and who they are, do you think that's shifting with generational shift, that idea, or do you think it's so ingrained that our culture it won't move? I think, it, I think it's a generational thing for sure. So I think, you know, like the prevalence of, of sort of humble bragging and virtue signalling and stuff and, and just social media basically, um, you know, the advent of, of social media is something that people like us remember you know, remember it not existing at all. Yeah. Um, and now it's just so all per- pervasive uh, and the, the rise of influencer culture where people have hundreds of thousands of, of followers for really not, not doing much. Um, I, think, I think Australia is definitely embracing a bit of that American capitalist ideal of, you know, of, of being the best and being the biggest and boldest. Do you think not, so? not a great thing. No, do you think social media is affecting our Australianness, our unique place in the world? I mean, it, it has to, I don't, and I don't think it's just Australia. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I don't really know what you would describe Australian culture as, really. I mean, mm. you know, we're such a brilliantly multicultural country. If you think about, like, what, what is an Australian cuisine? I mean, I, you know... I don't know. Is it? It's not bangers and mash anymore. Surely, it's not a meat pie anymore. Surely, you know. No. I, I mean, I would like to embrace. I would like to see us embracing more indigenous food. You know, I've, I'm a big fan of Dark Emu, the book by Bruce Pascoe, and and he talks about how achievable it would be for for us to, you know, embrace um, more indigenous cuisine. You know, and it's. I don't. Know, I think Australian culture is is. You know, it's still an emerging thing. It's not. Surely, it's not colonial British culture anymore. Surely that's not Australian culture. It should be more indigenously, you know, influenced and it's massively influenced by multiculturalism. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what Australian culture is. I really don't. I never have. I know what you mean. Without kind of resorting to a cliche, you'd like yeah, exactly. to have moved on from all those things. We're not, uh, we're not that cliche. We're, we're no. better than that cliche. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, talking about uh, Indigenous, Indigenous Literacy Foundation, which you... Uh, very, very involved with. Where did that interest come from? Um, it came from just always being um, interested and appalled by, you know, Australia's treatment of our Indigenous 
um, brothers and sisters and, and just, you know, getting to a point in my life where I was like, well, I can, you know, I'd, I'd always had a strong interest. I'd read lots of books and, and, and you know, we'd done a bit of it in, in high school. But, like, when I got out of high school and started reading more into it, I realised how inadequate the education that I'd had about it was um, in, in high school. And, and I, I presume that it's changed a bit, but it's... Um, it was just something that I felt driven to get involved in because it's just appalling. I mean, there's, there's just the statistics there, the, the history's there. It's just it's an appalling history. And the ILF just do a very quantifiable, um, simple job of getting culturally appropriate books into remote Indigenous communities to raise literacy levels. And it's all... There's no government intervention. There's no government funding. It's all... Uh, funded by you know donations basically, and they are all. It's all um, you know with the endorsement of the elders of these particular communities. Um, they translate books into language. They write books with authors, indigenous and otherwise, with the kids in the community, so the books are written in their language. Um, and it's just a really positive thing that they do. And yeah, so I just it just seemed like a. It's such a, a, a broad range. There's so many broad ranging issues, but this felt like something that was actually achievable. Now, you're an author yourself. Um, a banana is a banana. Lights out Leonard. Uh, what's it like entering that headspace of writing for children? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, it's like it's, it's really fight. It feels like it's fighting the good fight, you know, being involved in creativity in regards to kids. Um, so the banana book was it was actually it's the it's transcribed from a song that Justine Clark and I wrote for her TV show, um, and then Lights Out Leonard is is one that I wrote myself, uh, and then I've got another five coming out in the next year and a half through Scholastic, um, and it just feels good. It, you know, it feels when when you you know kids are pretty brutal when they when they're reading kids books. If they're not interested, they just toss it aside, and there's a real craft to writing a good kid good kids book it's it's like writing a song you know you have to uh, have a lot of economy and you have to tell a a story or a message in a very short amount of time but also not in a very heavy-handed way you need to leave more questions than answers um it's just yeah it's a great it's a great form of creativity and when you see the kids like getting involved and and reading them you know i just got a tweet recently that uh, a kid was going to book week as leonard which is like you know that's a real you know, check check of the box for a, a kid's book author. Uh, and that book in particular has been received incredibly well. It's been translated into six other territories. It's in China, Taiwan, Germany, Netherlands, the States, um, Italy. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very gratifying. Hey, you're right, though. If a child turns up to school dressed as your character, that's probably up there with getting an aria, I would think. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's the equivalent of an aria in the, in the kids' book world. <laughs> Now, you did a, a brave thing a few years ago. You did the best of, the compilation, the B-sides. A lot of people are terrified of that idea of doing that. They feel like it's the end of their career. I think in a way it probably gave you a new beginning. Was that you drawing a line under the past to then dive into the future? Yeah, I mean, there's a few issues with it in the sense that, I, I, I mean, for full disclosure, I, I was contractually obliged to do it. I had to do that um, best of in order to, to complete my... Um, contract with Ivy League Records, which is, you know, that's just, that's what I signed up for, you know, 10 years ago when I, or 15 years ago when I signed to them. Um, so I, I had to do it. I could have done it at any point. There was no pressure from them at all. They're, they're fantastic. 
Um, but for me, the timing of it, knowing that I had to do it at some point and then the timing of it, I knew that I wanted to take a break. At the time, I didn't, I didn't really mention that it was because I was having these anxiety issues, but that was why. And so instead of going out on a negative and saying, oh, I'm taking some time off because I'm having these issues, I wanted to kind of draw a line under it in a positive way and say, you know, this is the, the work that I've done in this period of my career um, and this represents a period of my career that I'm really proud of. And I'm going to put that aside, do a big celebratory tour and then, you know, get back into it uh, when I'd sort of felt like I'd sorted my, my life out a bit. Um, so, yeah, there was a few, few things going on there. When I hear the record, um, the new record, Rome, I know that a number of songs have been released already. Uh, I think maybe five, I don't know, Doubting Thomas, Home, Don't Let It Wait, You're My Colour. But I've enjoyed hearing it as an album, hearing the whole arc of a record. I even feel the way you've sequenced the album with uh, old songs now is very rousing. Then there's like almost the coda with where where goes the girl at the end. Um, Did you conceive or put the record together in a traditional way, thinking of an arc of telling a a story or presenting it to people? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a a huge fan of of the album format still. Um, But I also, you know, hugely acknowledge that that's not how everybody consumes music anymore. So, you know, I think there's... That's you know we didn't release the the, the singles in inverted commas um, in the sequence of the the album so they tell mm. a different story um, but the story of the album definitely has a beginning a middle and an end um, you know old old time's sake the the first song is feel it just it's just an it's an album opener you know it sets the the tone and the theme and where goes the girl I, on all my albums I always finish the album with you know since the very first album I've always finished the album albums with a more reflective, contemplative, long, you know, kind of meandering exit song, uh, and this, you know, this definitely feels like a kind of bookmark on the end of the on, on the end of this period of, of songwriting for me. Now uh, we're obviously talking via Zoom, and I can see in the background this is obviously Tim Shell Studios where you're calling from, mm-hmm. which was where you recorded the album. But then you took the record to Portland to have it mixed. What was the thinking there? Did you need to sort of get away from yourself to have a different view of the record? Yeah, it was very much that. It was also, I mean, there was, again, it's, a, it's never one thing. It was, you know, recording the album largely at home over a long period, over almost two years, really. It took me, I, I'd come back to stuff and, and, you know, leave stuff behind and then come back to it. And it was a very domestic um, process, no time constraints. Sometimes I'd come down at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and record with a whiskey. Sometimes I'd record during the day. Uh, I had friends and, and family come over to, to help on tracks. Um, you know, I went to a couple of other studios locally. Uh, the drummer, Josh Schubert, um, has a, a little studio in the Blue Mountains where I got him to track some drums and I went over to Leichhardt, to Matt Fell's studio, but largely it was done here. And whilst that was awesome and, and brilliant and I can't really imagine doing a record any other way now, I did feel that I needed some kind of sense of creative closure to, to, to kind of put a cap on it. Um, and for me, that creative closure was, it felt like I needed to go somewhere. Like it just, there was a, a drive in me to, it'd been such a domestic period uh, that I really felt like I needed to kind of get away from that and go somewhere that I hadn't been before. I'd never been to Portland. So part of it was, you know, a search for adventure, which I'm always, always searching for. Um, 
and Tucker Martin is brilliant. I've, I've loved all the stuff that he's done with some of my favourite artists like Sufjan Stevens and the Decemberists and, you know, loads and loads of people. Look him up. He's, I mean, just done so much stuff. So we, he'd already done Doubting Thomas remotely and I knew that aesthetically it was going to be great, but I wanted to be there because I'd produced the whole thing myself. I wanted to mm. actually be there in the room. So, yeah, that was the, that was the reason. It was partly creative closure and partly a, a search for, a, you know, adventure. So, so what happens during the course of a mix? So Tucker's there, he's got your multi-tracks. Do, are you there from the minute he logs in in the morning or do you go away and get a coffee and come back and let the song reveal itself to you in a different way? Yeah, no, I, the, it's, I, he was very open to me being there from, from the beginning, but um, I find it, I don't find it helpful. I mean, mm. doing production work and mixing stuff myself all the time, I know that it's, you know, there's a whole lot of just administrative kind of uh, work that you do on a record before the creative stuff starts. So I'd come in at about, he'd start at 10, I'd come in at about two or three and then we'd be together until about seven. Uh, and so I'd be there for the, for the last four hours of the song really working, you know, the creative element of it, you know, things like how long the delay was going to be or, you know, how a plate reverb or a spring reverb or whatever. Um, and, you know, we also, we made a few arrangement changes, stuff like that, um, so it was a very creative process, but the but it was deliberately I'd come in at, towards the end so that I didn't step on any toes, but also just so it didn't become boring. <laughs> I understand you had like 40 songs gathered over that uh, five-year period, and some of the songs I believe that you'd written, put away, and then come back to and revisit as if they were almost new songs to you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the few times in my creative life where I feel like I was able to get some objectivity about songs. Um, even now, you know, like coming back to things, I don't listen to my own music. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that many musicians do listen to their own music. So even now listening when I've heard it on the radio or, or uh, you know, been doing interviews and people have played my songs, I do feel an objectivity around this album that I have never felt before, which is really great you know, knowing that my fingerprints on, are on every single song because I literally tracked it myself. I think the process of having Tucker really add his uh, voice to it at the end took it in a direction that allowed me to be more objective about it. And I, I really enjoyed that process. It's a process of letting go, which is comes with confidence and age, I guess. Obviously, uh, during this period too, your basement birds has come up, bolters, sword owls. Is it good for you to go and join a group of other people and make music and not be the central focus? Yeah, I mean, that's what I really love about producing other artists as well. I mean, during this, this whole lockdown period, uh, because I haven't been able to tour, I've, I've focused on producing other artists. So I've done some stuff with uh, a great Sydney artist called Brian Estepa and, and Reese Bailey and, and my drummer, Russell Crawford. I've done some tracks with him and a bunch of tracks with Alana Stone as well. And... For me, the, yeah, the, the enjoyment of that comes from not being the focus and from you know, facilitating somebody else's creativity and, and definitely having you know, a big input and you get to play you know, bass or guitar on songs that you, wouldn't, that you didn't write, you know, that, you, that you're enjoying from a, a creative, you know, from a witness's point of view rather than from a creator's point of view. Um, and yeah, the same with Basement Birds. Um, Sword Owls is actually just a solo project of me that sounds like a band because I played all the instruments. But even that, just stepping away and not it not being, you know, a Josh Pike record, is yeah, it's always liberating. I mean, it's 
my I know now that my creativity extends, you know, way beyond, uh, you know, Josh Pike records. Um, and it's a process of just now that I have this studio and uh, and sort of have the the actual amenities to do this stuff, it's just a, a joy to be able to engage in all different types of creativity. But I am the sort of person that once I've done it, I kind of feel like I need to do something with it. So that's why it always ends up on Spotify or on a record or as a book or whatever. You're not going to be JD Salinger and just put it in a drawer. No, I can't. I can't do that. Maybe one day I'll I'll lose enough of my ego to let me do that. But at the moment, my ego is telling me that I need my stuff to be heard. <laughs> I've seen you do the uh, White Album shows, and uh, first of all, brilliant. Thank but you. Uh, it, it must take balls of steel to get out there with an acoustic guitar and play Blackbird. Oh, it's, it scares the shit out of me every single time. Like I've done that. We've done that show four or five times now. So we've done you know probably a hundred performances of it. Um, and I've rehearsed the absolute living hell out of it before, like just obsessively, and I still freak out every time, every time. I never, I didn't screw it up once, uh, and, you know, I, yeah, it's terrifying. It's a, such an iconic song, iconic songwriter, iconic band in these iconic venues as well, and it's just, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, you are a wonderful natural musician. How many times did you play that riff before you locked it down, do you think? Oh, I mean, I, 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 because I don't really learn many covers, I just, I'm not, I'm not actually a very, like, good uh, technical musician. I'm self-taught guitarist. I'm self-taught, you know, all, all the instruments that I play. So, you know, I had to look it up on YouTube how to play it. Uh, I can't read music or anything, so I had to, I can't even read guitar tabs. So I had to look it up on YouTube and watch somebody else play it and figure it out like that. And, um, and then halfway through, somebody told me that it was actually in a different tuning with the, it was drop G. So I had to relearn it in drop G, which did make it a lot easier, I gotta say. Um, so it was, a, it was quite a long process. I'm just, I'm not that, like, I'm just not that musician. I'm more, a, I kind of, I know how to play instruments in order to um, write songs rather than, yeah for the sake of playing instruments. Well, I've got to say, every time you did it, you hit it out of the park. So congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, you're a fellow that likes to give back and you obviously started the Buzz Project, which was a, a grant thing a long time ago, helped give you a start. And you've got the JP partnership. Um, what was your motivation uh, for that? Because basically it's giving people under 35 a chance to have their music be heard, right? Yeah, so the JP partnership we started six years ago, um, and it's you get uh, seven and a half grand and mentorship from myself, my manager Greg, and my booking agent um, Steve Wade, and and APRA Ampkos um, chip in for for some of the money as well. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I get asked a lot why why I did it, and it's I, I can't really. I mean, it just it sounds simple, but it was just like I got to a point in my career where things were going well enough and I knew that I knew the things that had made an impact on my career early on which was things like getting that buzz grant and, and a couple of other grants early on and the funding landscape just didn't seem that big there wasn't that many grants small grants for emerging artists that particularly that you know encapsulated that in, in, you know encouraged mentorship and had a mentorship element and it was kind of as simple as just being in a position to be able to do it and and having the relationship with APRA to to get it happening and so I just kind of felt like, well, if, if you can do it, you kind of should do it. And it was 
simple as that. I thought maybe it would go for a year or two and now it's in its sixth year and some amazing artists uh, are coming out of it. It's a wonderful thing you've done. I'm curious about your uh, working day. Do, do you sort of wake up or do you set a plan in place the night before and go, tomorrow it's songwriting, tomorrow I'm going to be writing a book for kids? What, what, how does that work? How do, you, how do you sort of plan your day or week? I do, I, I do, I'm a fan of structure, but I don't, I, as you know, this sounds super hippy-dippy, but I kind of just follow my joy. So, you know, if I wake up, I try and do some kind of exercise in the morning. I drop my kids off at school and then I come home um, and try and do some kind of exercise because it's, it's just a good, good thing to do. And then if I feel like tinkering away at, um, you know, some music, then I'll do that. But if I feel inspired to, to write uh, some, some kids' books, then I do that. But what I actually... What I, what I actually find is that the, inspira- the inspiration for, for songs or books always comes about when I'm just doing something else. So like if I'm riding my bike or doing some gardening or whatever or taking my kids to school or walking home from school, that's when the inspiration usually strikes. And I, I know now after years of trying to make that lightning strike that it doesn't work like that. So I don't ever sit any... I used to do this all the time, but I, I don't anymore sit in the studio kind of going, okay, you've got to write a song today, you've got to, got to write a book. It just... It doesn't work like that for me. So I make sure that I'm sort of in a mental, you know, headspace for, for, to, to accept the inspiration when it comes. And then when I get it, it's, that's when I can structure my day and go, okay, I'm going to spend the day writing this book or, or working on this song that came to me. But I need to do incidental things in order to receive the inspiration. I mean, it's a stupid... I mean, if I could do it every day, it would be, I would do it every day, but it just doesn't work <laughs> like that. Um, but, you know, like day to day, there's, there's always other stuff that I need to do. Um, you know, like I, I'm constantly hustling for stuff to do. Like I've got three podcasts that I've pitched in the last, you know, couple of months. Um, like I said, I've got another five books coming out through Scholastic in the next year and a bit. So I'm, you know, going back and approving artwork or going through the edit of the books um, I do produce music for other people, so I'm mixing stuff for other people, and yeah, there's always there's always something to do. Well, congratulations on the album, Josh. You've made a terrific record. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I hope it goes very well for you. And thanks for taking the time to chat today. Pleasure, mate. Thank you. Uh, big thanks to Josh Pike for being our guest on Sony Music's Time to Talk today. Josh's new album, Rome, is out now. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and we hope to see you back again very soon for Sony Music's Time to Talk.